I'll share examples. Hey, we're doing this this year in part because of feedback I got from last year. So it creates a really cool circuit over time. But it's also really important to own your choices as a teacher because I think we've all been in those situations where people are like, oh, I'm just going by what people said. And at the end of the day, you're the teacher. There's a power dynamic in the room and you need to own the choices you make. To the Broken Copier, a conversation about teaching. The goal of the show is to connect with a passionate, diverse group of educators to bring helpful analysis and collaboration to folks working in the classroom. Marcus, how you doing, my friend? It's happy July. We did it. It is July. It, I will say it was. I was shocked that it took this long to get to July. And I say that a month from now, I will not be feeling that way. But summer's stretching a little bit for now. And I appreciate that. How about for you? Yeah, it's good. Uh, we're finally in the golden month of teaching, which is fantastic. Um, my summer's been good. It's been very quiet and relaxing. We were talking a little bit about the productive side of my brain saying you need to be more productive. Uh, but I've been good the past two weeks. I've been golfing and working out and playing guitar and going on walks with the dogs and uh, watching a lot of Netflix. So that's been good. And one of the big projects I have this, uh, everyone talks about how easy the summers are for teachers, which is true, but I do have, uh, I have a certification, a couple certification tests I need to study for and take and pass this summer. So that's kind of annoying and it's like, I'm putting it off. And also I need to do my recommendation letters, but those are going to be the two school-oriented projects that I have that I'm probably going to procrastinate on for as long as possible. And now I have ChatGPT, which apparently writes uh, really good recommendation letters. That's that's a whole. <laughs> let's stay away from that one for now. I also have a list of yeah. letters accruing. Uh, so today, for folks listening, our focus is going to be about talking regarding feedback as teachers and how we use it in our classrooms. More broadly, how much feedback is the right amount? Uh, and then we're also just to have a little fun. It's summer. Uh, Jim and I are going to talk about a show we both watched that many people have watched recently, The Bear, and why it meant so much to us, including potentially a little uh, education connection with that. So we're going to go down that road that we haven't gone before uh, on the show. Before that, though, I, we're going to start with our bell ringer and kind of lead off from the summer question. I'm going to flip it a little bit, though, from the script. Jim, if you're talking to a younger teacher, how much of an off switch do you recommend they have for themselves as a teacher during the summer? That's a really good question. I feel like um, I feel like it's important, especially for newer teachers, to be realistic about their time. Like the reality is, I mean, summers, my summer is six weeks which is a long time, but it's not that, you know, it's not that much time. Um, and, you know, I know some, some teachers might have eight, eight weeks or so, but you should still be realistic about your time. Like I'm like, if you're a newer teacher though, 
frankly, I would recommend working a decent amount in the summer because there, I mean, I think we've talked about this earlier in the show, like you kind of, there's a certain level of just like work that you have to do to build and refine. And if you have, I feel like most teachers are the kind of people who are really invested in building systems and building a really engaging culture around their content. And I think that that does actually take a good amount of time and thinking, like just independent thinking for yourself and your context to reflect on and say, all right, well, if I do this or, or write out some systems and create some materials that you can hand out uh, in the fall, if you hit the ground running with those things, like the reality is your year would be much more sustainable. And I would, I would encourage people even, even in the summer to think about, cause I, I do this, like thinking about the investment that you make on your time and like, don't try to completely revamp and write a new curriculum or write something that's not feasible to do in the amount of time that you have. And don't work that hard. Like don't work for eight hours a day, I would say, but it's definitely worth putting in some time over the summer to continually refine, to make your practice more balanced and more sustainable and and more, efficient so that you're not scrambling the day of in September, October, I would honestly, I would recommend, I don't, I don't know any teacher who doesn't do that. And I think the reason is around sustainability and I do it a lot less now than I, than I have to, but, or than I used to, but um, yeah, that's, that's what I would say. What do you think? Well, I think at least for most teachers, like you're not being paid for this time. So summers are easy because we're not compensated for them. Uh, so that's I think true. that's important to start with. Like this isn't like paid time off. You're the, the reason our salaries are lower than others is because you're only being paid X number of days in a year and the summer is not included in that. So mm-hmm. I like to start there. The second thing I'd add is that for me, the question of how much work I want to do, and I think you alluded to this, starts with, how did my previous year go and what were the things I wasn't able to do at the time I had during the school year? And if there's gaps there that you want to pre-plan for the next year, I think that's fine. I also would say that the summer is a great time, especially there's like two stages of summer, right? There's the early expansive time where you have all this flexibility and it's beginning of July. And then there's, oh, the last few weeks of summer as you're yeah. leaning in and ramping up on the school year. Cause I, I kind of treat those differently for me personally. The first part I think about what am I curious about? What do I want to learn more about that might potentially be helpful? So maybe it's like some new books. Maybe uh, I want to learn about this topic that like putting on that learner hat. I talked with Brett in our most recent interview about, mm-hmm. I think that's a great place for summer. Like I want to learn about this and by learning about this, I might be a better teacher of students with it. The, then when it gets closer, the advice I give to myself as well as to anyone else is that I think the school year is such a nice thing if you walk in with the first four to six weeks completely planned out. So mm-hmm. that's I've got unit one planned out. I've got everything ready to go. I've got a clear system because then I have the time to be flexible 
and adjust to what my students need and what I'm learning about uh, with families, making more communication. If I can take away all the logistics and the minutia, my life will be better as a teacher to start out. So I kind of think of it as most of summer, do what's best for you, dive into your curiosities. Then when it gets closer, maybe a little pragmatism of saying my life will be easier for the next semester if I can get some things done. So that's how I would negotiate that summer. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think you brought up the the paid, the compensation piece is something that I uh, wasn't thinking about, but it's totally true. Like you shouldn't, you should really not just volunteer your time for free <laughs> as much, unless it's going to, unless it's going to make like your life uh, in the classroom a lot better. I think that's a really good line to think about. Yeah. If anyone looks at you and says you should be doing X, yeah. the answer is no. Like yeah. it, it, it needs to always come from a place of, I want to do this. I'm driven by this. I think this will help my life later on. That's fine. But if it's, I feel obligated or guilty if I don't do this, which I struggle with. I, yeah. And I have, so I'm, I'm not trying to point fingers, but that is not the right way to go about it. So, but I think that's, yeah. that's a, a deeper bell ringer. We can dive into it yeah, later. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, but I do think it's important to think about our own mindsets as teachers. Cause it's a weird space where we really want to keep going, going, going. But if we do keep going, 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 there's no off switch and it's not sustainable. Yeah. Well, speaking of sustainability, uh, we can pivot. I'm going to, I'm going to do a really great transition here because I have no idea how you find time to write, uh, as much as you do. And I'm, uh, I want to write a whole lot more, but I'm just like, I don't want, I write so much. And, uh, the point is you had this really good edutopia piece that you get because you do a lot of really good writing. Um, and this piece, I mean, I know that you've done a few Edutopia pieces before, but I thought this one was really good about student feedback. So why don't you tee that up for us? Okay. Uh, yeah. Thank you for those kind words. Uh, this is a piece that was, it's a pretty straightforward, Hey, this is when I write, I try to keep the mindset of something that's working for me, like to share it with others in case it's helpful for them and a system that I know that's different in my classroom than it used to be is that early in my career, I would give surveys. I just tended to give very long surveys at the end of the semester, the end of the year, really to the point of students to do page after page, paragraphs, lots of details. Maybe you see something like that in college courses. And then I'd have this stack of surveys and I would be exhausted and it's mm -hmm. summer and grades are due. And I never gave them the time, or even if I did read through them, they weren't transferable to making that classroom better because that classroom was over, technically speaking. Right. So right. I really just tried to shift gears in two ways. One, I've just very targeted surveys. It can be a single question. It could be three questions throughout the year, quick and you know, exit ticket surveys, questions that I can quickly get feedback on but then the bigger shift and the one that I think doesn't happen enough at various levels, including admin to teachers, et cetera, is I got this survey data and then almost within seconds, sometimes if it's a Google form, here are the results from our classroom on the screen. Mm -hmm. What would you do if you're the teacher? And shifting gears to say, asking students, you've got this data now, 
what choice would you make as a teacher? And we've had some really good conversations about that. We do that in different ways in the classroom, but essentially the piece was talking about how that shift has made a difference in my classroom. So that's my like in a nutshell overview. Yeah. One quick point on that. It, the the way that you're talking about student feedback kind of reminds me of like the pitfall of the big, long, comprehensive beginning of the year student surveys where it's like the teachers are trying to collect all this like really in some cases like really particular information about all this student with all these grand ideas about how how you're going to use it and implement it. But like if you don't have a clear vision for how you're going to use that survey data, then why are you going to make I don't know. Those 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 beginning of the year surveys are like the first things to kind of have students spend 45 minutes on at the beginning of the, so the school year and then like not really used. Um, that's yeah, that's just like one quick thing that it reminds me of is something that's kind of similar. Yeah, and I've pivoted away from those as well. Like I used to do the same thing. And now the beginning of the year survey is much more narrowly tailored for that reason. Yeah. Well, I wanted to, so I want to zoom in on like one idea about feedback in particular, which is essentially, I think like teach, like illuminating the line for where the, the teacher responsibility is and where the student responsibility is. Um, and I have a couple questions for you on this, but let me just start here. Um, so this is the gallery walk with my sophomores. I ended one unit with, if you were the teacher gallery walk around the room, I hung posters with examples of, or questions about instructional choices I had made. For example, one poster posed a question to students about whether a single novel or collection of short stories would have worked better for the skills of a given unit. And this was helpful for me because I feel like a lot of my I think the thing that makes your approach really strong is that you have done the work ahead of time in soliciting the feedback on like the specific things that you are looking for feedback around. And I feel like a lot of times teachers will say, and I've definitely done this too. Teachers will say like, well, I'm an open book and students can come and talk to me. And, and like, if something is not working then they can describe that. And a, like a lot of, no matter what I, a lot of students, no matter how nice I am, no matter how sort of approachable I think I am, like you're working with teenagers who don't feel comfortable, like just walking up many teacher teenagers just don't feel comfortable just saying like, well, I wish that this could have been done differently or this would have like students really need to be invited into that process um a because of the power dynamic but also because like they're not the teacher right like they aren't it's not it's not their job nor is it really their skill set or their like they shouldn't be responsible for coming up with the ideas um so is that yeah i i mean maybe you can just like what do you think about that i think the specific the, the specifics in soliciting the feedback are really kind of what makes it work I agree with this and I think it's core to why, uh, like my purpose behind it. And I appreciate you noting that or zooming in on it because 
the invites part of the ball game. If you just say, hey, do you guys have any feedback on what we did and don't have a planned activity around it where you really scaffold up? It might be like independent reflection, small group. Okay, every group's going to share out one piece of feedback. I'm going to make a list of it. Like You have to treat it with the same intentionality you would any other learning activity in the classroom. If you just throw it out there and say, oh, no one had any feedback, guess things are great, you're not going to get the feedback that you need from it. So I think you have to not just invite them in, but be intentional about it. And then I'd also, like for me, the big part of this is I want them to know that these choices, that our teachers are making choices like the ones I'm posing to them mm-hmm. all, in all their classes, in pre- previous years, future years. And they have, in my opinion, they deserve to have a say and give feedback to all those choices. And I try to, I tell them that during these activities. So I say like, yes, I'm talking about in this unit, we had a choice of, do we approach this skills with a single text or with multiple texts with book clubs or personal choice reading? We could have done all three. Here are my reasons. Like I will say, I'll have a little paragraph saying my values and choices were based off of this. What would you have done? And then I say in other classes, whether it's in science or math or some elective, your teacher's making choices too. And I think it's important to model for them that those choices are being made so that they feel empowered to advocate for themselves in other spaces because those are skills that matter beyond the classroom. The ability to say, hey, I have feedback based on what I went through. Can I offer it to you? And one, selfishly, we're better as teachers when we're getting that feedback, but it's also for students a skill to advocate for themselves in a substantive way about their experience that I think matters a great deal. Yeah. And I think one, something that I've noticed is I feel like I've developed and refined my approach to getting student feedback. It's also helpful for, it's also like helpful for students to sort of understand that what happens in the, like there's a lot of work that goes goes on behind the scenes when you're not on, when you're not in the classroom and to bring students into that process and let them know that like when you're on your prep periods and when you're doing like, there's, it's just kind of helpful to pull back that curtain a little bit so that they, cause in a lot of, a lot of times that I've done that, like it's also good for classroom culture because the students know that like, Mayors isn't just not talking because he's checking his email at his computer. Like he's making a choice to give independent work time right now uh, because I need to be doing X, Y, and Z or we're in a Socratic seminar. And I'll say you know, like the reason why I'm not going to talk at as, or the reason why I'm not going to, I'm going to not talk as little as possible that's not the correct sentence, but the, uh, I haven't had my coffee yet. But naming and calling out and saying why you're like doing these things brings students in, I think, a lot more that helps with culture overall in a more sustainable way. Agree. And the flip side of this that I've seen, I probably make this mistake and I've seen others make the mistake. Something that is helpful is like, I'll give an example. Because uh, we're talking about all these, you know, broader systems, and if you're listening and not familiar, I want to give a clear example. At the end of Unit One, I asked students, I just quick Google form, how do you feel about the pace at which we're moving? 
and it was kind of a Goldilocks situation of way too fast, little too fast, all the way to way too slow. And got the data, put it right back in front of them as a class and said, okay, here's what we did. You guys just went through this. It was uh, about 50% said right pace, 25% said a little too fast, 25% said a little too slow. And I said, okay, you're a teacher, you get this data. What do you do in a small group? And a lot of them were like, oh, this isn't like you asked for feedback and people had different opinions and mm -hmm. it's one class. This is hard. And yeah. part of me was a little bit of not, I told you so, but yeah. it, the transparency there wasn't to say, oh, I got this really clear answer and I implemented it. But a lot of times you get survey data and the survey is mixed. You have different students want different things. And by inviting students into that process, one, I, I'm always very clear. I'm the teacher and ultimately I'm accountable for these decisions. So oftentimes I will, hey, we did this unit. I want your feedback. It's ultimately my call because I'm going to do this for next year, but I want to invite your feedback in and I'll share examples. Hey, we're doing this this year in part because of feedback I got from last year. So it creates a really cool circuit over time. But it's also really important to own your choices as a teacher because I think we've all been in those situations where people are like, oh, I'm just going by what people said. Now, at the end of the day, you're the teacher, there's a power dynamic in the room and you need to own the choices that you make. And I think that two-part process of inviting feedback, but then owning your choices as a teacher is integral to building authentic trust and credibility with your students. And that's what I've enjoyed the most about this system is the end result of consistently owning the choices I make and inviting feedback in an authentic way from students. One... One of the things, I mean, so I think the thing, A, you have a system, you've, you've refined this over time, you're sharing data with students, you're, I think that that transparency, it builds empathy and like an, an understanding of students like, oh, well, I thought this was great, but all the, you know, a handful of other students thought differently or vice versa. One of the pitfalls that I've had with sort of soliciting student feedback and getting them to take it seriously is just like the investment piece. Like, and, and also like I've had students like participate in these types of survey activities and discussions in ways that are like kind of perfunctory because, and like, this is something that I struggle with a lot, but it's all, it also is like a transactional nature around their grade. It's like, like, well, if this isn't, if this immediate thing that I'm doing right now is not, is not like going to help my grade that I'm just going to like get it done. And I don't know, how do you, have you experienced any of that sort of like surface level engagement? And was it just like a time thing and tr building trust? Like how, how did that work for you? Very much a real thing. I think as the year progresses, these conversations get more honest and fruitful. And I yeah. kind of like almost backwards plan with your classroom culture in alignment with it. So start of the year, it's like that pacing question. It's a 10 minute thing. It's quick. Mm -hmm. You can drop that in. You build in the activity. End of year, one of these classes, like we took two separate 30 minute spaces to debrief. They did the gallery walk activity and they had so much to say in our conversation after. And in that conversation, I am sitting with a clipboard, taking notes on what they say, challenging myself to just say yes and facilitate the conversation and not to explain 
if they mm-hmm. point out something, just to take notes on what they're saying and they're responding to each other. And that in one class went over an hour when mm-hmm. you combine it over two periods. So it depends on the class. You definitely build that. But I would think the first step would be if if you hit that wall, is that wall because students don't feel their voice is valued? And part of that can come from, I would offer, not giving it the time and structure and planning for the feedback experience that you do for other things in your class that work. And mm-hmm. the other thing is, students aren't used to doing this. Sometimes they're like, this is weird. I don't ever give feedback on what things we're doing in school. And mm-hmm. I, you have to break through that wall. I feel like it's purposeful to break through that wall, but it is something that takes a lot of planning and intentionality to get to. And it's not always successful. There are those awkward classes where it's like, oh, guess you guys don't have very much to say on this. We're going right. to move forward. So that does happen. Yeah. It's not always this utopia of amazing yeah, feedback. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think one of the things, did you do any Socratic like feedback oriented Socratic seminars uh, I mean, I, I feel like you kind of, or not a Socratic seminar, but just like, like a roundtable discussion is probably a better word. Or does it kind of just naturally roll in with when you do gallery walks and share survey data? Almost always, I try to integrate kind of Kagan structures or collaborative structures to build up to whatever the whole class. Because for me, the pitfall is going from here's the data. What do you guys think? Which mm-hmm. means that. They're going to do some sort of individual reflection in their spiral about what they feel or the gallery walk. Then they're going to have structured talk with partners or small groups. So, okay, partner A, what was one of the six things we had feedback questions on that you have a strong opinion about? What is it and why? You've got 30 seconds, go. Partner B, same thing. Okay, now stand up and your partnership, partner with someone else, have that conversation. We're going to do that five-minute activity. Mm-hmm. That's what we do in our classroom for anything. And then after we've done that, now we're going to whole group because you've all had a chance to talk. And that means that you're basically just replicating what you said in a, a to a bigger audience. So I really, yeah. again, I think a lot of teachers are really intentional about if it's the learning activity for the day, building structures to get students to a successful place in sharing their ideas. I believe that. I see it all the time that teachers have a plan to get students to participate in those conversations. But when we get to feedback and you just go, Hey, what do you guys think? And you skip those steps. Then the feedback doesn't happen in an authentic way. Yeah. I had a similar experience this spring um, or like early summer before we were out in, in my AP seminar class, especially um, in, in preparation for the final exam, which I told, part of their final exam was like, was a reflective essay to, they could essentially pick like any of their projects to discuss and talk about what went well and what was successful. I got really, one of the really um, insightful pieces of feedback that I got was essentially like students thought that there was going to be a lot more freedom with their research topics than is actually true and possible in the course. And like, despite the fact they were like, well, when I read the one of some of the comments that stuck out in my mind and that people agreed with were like the way that the course description is written in the course handbook, it essentially makes it sound like it, it talks, I talk up how, how, flexible you can be 
with your independent research projects. But in the first semester, that's not really that that isn't as much the case. Um, and students were basically saying what they were basically like, yeah, you should you should let you should have let us know ahead of time or let us know more around the basically the fact that we're going to be focusing on like specific themes. We couldn't actually research what we wanted in the first semester, which in my mind, I'm like, I, I, I did like I did say that at the beginning of the year and it's in the syllabus and all that kind of stuff. But it's still insightful feedback because like, some you know, clearly some students didn't know. And you can say, oh, well, they like maybe they weren't paying attention or maybe they weren't doing their part. And like, I think a little bit of that is true from the like from what I was hearing. But I still think it was like a broad enough consensus that I had a meeting with the the AP seminar teacher next year. Not really a meeting, but just kind of like a conversation saying, hey, it's going to be really important in the first two weeks of class to like explicitly say to students this is what the first semester looks like. And here's why it's not, it's not like a total freedom in terms of your research topic. And like, if that's not what you want to sign up for, you should switch to a new class because this it, seminar is an elective course for us. So basically students said that they sort of wish that they had better time to decide whether or not they want to pursue the class. But then a majority of the students who gave that feedback also said, but I'm still glad I took the class. Like it was really good. And I, you know, but it's those types of conversations where it's on specific ideas and specific things. And like, I genuinely hadn't, I genuinely did not know and did not realize that this was something that was not clear to them. Those are the sort of moments that you should be thinking about. Cause like, if I have, if I have a good, like vocabulary instruction, right, is something that like, I really believe in, and know is super important, because I have the data to say, like, the students who are successful with their vocabulary practice, and their and like, I do a lot of work to make sure that the vocabulary that I'm teaching is aligned and in with with the units and stuff. The students who are like, well, I don't really like vocabulary. That I, you know, I, you tough, like it's part of the course, like that, that type of feedback is helpful to know, but I also kind of know that I'm not, I really believe in this as a structure and as an, as, as an instructional practice. And I also have a lot of other students who are saying that they like the vocabulary stuff and that it is helpful. So, but my, the point that I'm making is I'm not going to ask students for feedback at, at this point on the vocabulary stuff, because I have the data, it's a system that's working and it's, it's not going to yield anything. It would be more, it would be very performative of me to say, to act like to solicit feedback on vocabulary at this point. And so I think asking for, asking for specific feedback and also like intentionally focusing the feedback on something that you are genu genuinely like undecided on or curious or like want to know more that has been key for me to like have actual fruitful trust building conversations. I completely support that point. And I think that has been an, uh, the idea of asking questions about things you're authentically curious about makes a big difference. And I also think your example brings up the important reminder that how we receive feedback publicly in front of students 
is mm-hmm. an incredibly important example because if the moment we receive feedback about something, even if we know I have answers in our heads and I mistake this sometimes and our first response is, yeah, but, and we start mm-hmm. being defensive on the spot, that doesn't model for students what we want for them, right? We want them to be able to listen to feedback in an authentic way. And we are in a position of power. It should be easier for us. And we know there are plenty of right. teachers, administrators, et cetera, who don't receive feedback well. And I think if you're going to do this, if you're going to genuinely ask students for feedback and you're not personally prepared to respond to it well, then don't do it because right. yeah, you're making yeah. it worse. And I think your example, imagine you you have that conversation, you have all the reasons of why you did what you did, but now you can literally turn around next year and say, hey, I asked students about this one thing and we made this shift that we're going to emphasize in our curriculum going into next year. And I really appreciate yep. them for that. And that's why feedback matters because then you get the loop of yeah. the you have evidence that you took student feedback and it's changed your outcomes and what you do as a teacher. And I think that's like the goal we're all working towards. Uh, that's where we're doing. Yeah. You ready to talk about well, the bear? I'm so ready to talk about the bear, but I, I, I appreciate this feedback thing. Cause I think this is your points earlier. It's a reflective skill. Like it is a learning, uh, it is a learning experience too for students. And it's such an important um, thing to do. Like you have to be targeted, but it's, that reflective skill for students to reflect on their own learning and that metacognition can be and is and should be a part of like the giving the feedback. So yeah, I just congrats. It feels like this is something that you've worked on really well and, and are continuing to refine and uh, certainly is going to be a focus of mine when I, when I come back in the fall. Thank you. Because we know when they show up in the fall and we don't have all the relationships and knowledge, like it's it's nice to also remember that we got to this really cool point by the end. And it takes work to get to that point because uh, especially sophomores beginning of the year, it's a it's an experience. Yeah. (laughs) So anyhow, Jim, what is bear time? It's bear time. So folks, if you have not seen the show, this is spoiler territory. Uh, This is FX The Bear. You can find it on Hulu. Uh, Pretty quick show to watch, right? Like thirty minute episodes for the most part. Yeah, except for the uh, the yeah. Christmas dinner. That was Delicious. that was one of the most. Yeah, um, I, Aaron and I love this show. I think this show. I mean, I'm a huge Succession fan. We're both Succession fans. I have a hard time. I don't know. I, I don't know which show I like better. Like, I feel like on the merits, I I have this argument in my head of round. Well, Succession is the better show because it's like trying to do more and is is more ambitious. But I don't I don't really know. I I have enjoyed the bear, I think, a little bit more like I'm more invested in the characters because they are morally redeeming and I really want them to succeed. And I was I was hate watching Succession just like everybody else. It was obviously an amazing show, but like I wanted to see the kids fail in a spectacular way. And I really want Carmi's restaurant to succeed in a really spectacular way. And I feel like it's interesting to reflect on that because it's something that is more valuable to me is to watch redeeming shows, even though, you know, I will live and die by succession. It's an amazing show, but that's like one opening thought about it. Yeah. I think the idea that these are characters you can root for changes the ball game as a viewer. Uh, I also just think it's a show that at an emotional level has more variety 
like this, mm-hmm. when you think about you know episode episode four, uh, I think it was Honeydew, uh, and it's like the yeah. Marcus goes to Europe episode, and it's incredibly quiet yeah. and redemptive for his storyline. You compare it to the the Fishes episode, which is the crazy ensemble of guest yeah. performers. Uh, big spoilers here. If you from Jamie Lee Curtis to you know what uh, Mulvaney, John Mulvaney, Mulvaney, uh, Burntham, like all all sorts of characters. And the the guy who plays Saul Goodman, what's his name? Odenkirk, John oh, Odenkirk, uh, yeah, Bob, Bill, Bob, Bob, Bob Odenkirk. Odenkirk. Yeah, uh, he did a, so, he did a fantastic job in that episode. Uh, yeah, like the, I love work situation. And then and then you have the for me the best episode is the the episode following that forks which takes one character who's uh, in terms of Richie, who has just really been struggling. And it's, it's, it's not even like a real episode in the sense of like, this isn't realistic that this guy can go in one week and have his entire purpose renewed from starting from shining forks. Like there's even like some moments if you rewatched it already where you're like, Oh, this isn't real. Like there's like, they like turn in like the, the music, like he puts on a suit and it's almost like you're watching like this superhero movie and then mm-hmm. change and shifts. I mean, I, I, I almost like cried, like listening to a Taylor Swift song like that. Yeah. I never did that. And for me, yeah. the emotional uplift and the positivity about what that show was and find like part of me, like wants to like have like an every second counts poster. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's talk about hospitality as teachers. It, But yeah, I, I am amazed at what this show can do in such a confined space. And yeah. I just think succession is living on this world of prestige in an echelon of American life. That's not very relatable, even if they make yeah. those characters human within that experience. I think the bear takes something incredibly human that we all experience and can connect with. And they lean into every emotional place to explore within that space. And that's why I love it. So we're fanning out about this show a lot because we both really need to. And this is, this is really cathartic and helpful for me, but like, let's pivot. We wanted to bring it on the podcast because both of us were like, this is so relatable to teaching. So why do you think like, what are your asked? Like when you're watching or are there episodes that you're like, this is exactly resonant with my experience as a teacher? Why, why did you think that before I, I'm curious to just hear your examples before I give mine. Okay. So I get made fun of by many people accurately for being an A-type teacher. I'm very meticulous, like start of the year, especially like walking around, like arranging every desk perfectly, running yeah. through the PowerPoint slides in advance and like practicing the timing, like little details in the same way that they're setting up. The, like I want everything to be perfect when students walk in. Uh, to really have this incredible classroom experience and not saying that it always is perfect, but my mindset is I'm going to do everything possible preparing to make it perfect. And then the, when the bell rings, especially on those, we have days once a week where you have all eight classes in one day or those Mm -hmm. first days of school. And you're just like wave after wave of students are coming into your classroom and you're trying to reset. Like, I'm like, this is what this this That's restaurant exactly. is, right? It's yeah, like yeah. the stress and you're looking at the clock and the alarms going off and you're, you know, these little things are happening that throw everything off and you're trying to do it all by yourself. It's also a reminder that this is a collective experience. Education is collective work. So I, I like seeing it. I think 
in the, in our classrooms, we get siloed. And it was a reminder to me of how stressful that is for everyone involved, not just you, uh, students including. So I, I just watch it as a teacher and it really is stressful at times yeah. to watch as a teacher. Yeah. Uh, when Carmi gets locked at the oh, end yeah. though, that in also reminded me in, of what it feels like when you have a sub and yep. everything's happening yep. and you're not there. And that, yep. and, and oftentimes we put ourselves on pedestals. Like it can only happen if I'm doing every little thing. It's like, nope, this other people can do this too. Sometimes you're gone and everything's okay. And it was a very uh, humbling experience uh, of him getting locked in the ice fridge uh, in the restaurant and not being able to participate. For me, it was very akin to that experience of being dislocated from your classroom and realizing that it's going to be okay. Yeah. That was, yeah, that's, that's the big finale moment. And, uh, I have so many thoughts on that for me, the type a attention to detail stuff is really resonant. I also, for me, one of the things that I constantly think about in every episode is like how good of a teacher Carmi is and Carmi is Carmi's not a very good teacher. He's not a good communicator. That's like his ultimate failing of in the show. And I think for me as a teacher, the best part about season two was watching in some cases like Sid really stepping up both with her own skill set, but also like Carmi giving her more ownership over hiring in the restaurant and Sid taking sort of taking a chance on Tina, but like she needs Tina to step up and Sue and like, for me, the idea was just thinking about like people and trust and like that help bringing people in and teaching them the way that the restaurant needs to work was just like so core at that. That is what you do as the teacher. And those moments where Carmi seems to like open up and starts to say like, okay, well you need to build your skill set sending people off using his connections to send people off to Denmark and culinary school. And like knowing, I don't know, those, those character arcs in the show were really important. And that when that's when I was thinking about education and teaching a lot, um, because it was just ultimately Carmi needed to like trust and just believe that people could actually do it. And I really wanted to just yell at him and say like, yes, they can do it. Like step up and bring them in. But it's also not like a happy ending season two. And I think that's where I, it also makes me think about education in a, a little bit of a bleaker way. Going back to our initial conversation, this episode, like I don't think it's a happy ending for Sydney this ep this season. I don't think it's definitely not for Carmi. Because they're both struggling yeah. with this question of what does it take for me to make this work in the way I want it to work? This vision of perfection, like getting all the mm -hmm. stars and accolades for the restaurant. And for Carmi, it means, oh, and he like literally does this, right? Like sacrificing other things in his life that give him joy. He like says that in the fridge and ruining his relationship. For Sydney, mm -hmm. she, like her ending image is after they have this ultimately successful first night with family. Uh, she's picturing the order machine spitting out tickets even after it's done because she's just so overwhelmed at that experience of trying to keep up the pace. 
she's thinking of all the restaurants she's seen closed down around the city. Mm-hmm. She goes in the back and pukes uh, out behind yeah. the restaurant because she's like, oh, there's going to be tomorrow night. We're going to do this again and again yeah. and again. And I think about it as a teacher, you have this incredible lesson. You work, Everything works out perfectly and you're exhausted and another class walks in the room. And then yep. you have another year of teaching and then you have another year and you see all the hard things that are going on with educators around the country. And it's like, like how do you just build a wall and say, I'm still going to make my classroom good. And what do you have to give of yourself to make that classroom good to the point that you want it to be good? I, I, for me, it got to a very deep level watching this. I'm yeah. like very, it was cathartic. It was also existentially panicking. Yeah. Yeah. If Carmi asks for help, if Carmi is is <laughs> honestly, it makes me think of the feedback conversation that we just had. Like if Carmi just said to his staff, I really want to pursue this relationship with Claire. I want to have the restaurant and I want to have a relationship. If he were able to say that to his staff and Richie, that the blow up that Richie like Richie wants that for him too. And Richie has a lot of character flaws and didn't say that to Carmi. Instead, he yelled at him for screwing up the relationship and it was really toxic. But like, people are going to help him out and they have the skill set to do it. If he would just ask, and if he had, you know, this will sound familiar to a lot of teachers. Yeah, this is his life's work and his passion and his creative pursuit. But like if he puts boundaries on his time and people have a clear expectation of what his role is versus other things. And if Carmi himself has a much clearer expectation of what his role is and other things like he takes so much personal owner. He's overextends himself too much to the point that he can't even communicate what he needs and if he opened up and was like leaned on his staff and was like this is what i need they they love him they would help him they would they would execute clearly richie can step up in in the heat and sid you know sid is an amazing chef and yeah there was there was a lot of existential questions but i think i hope a i hope there's a season 3 but i that character arc for carmi of like having a vision having the vision and not feeling like he has to do every little thing is really, I think, connected and and a familiar experience for a lot of teachers. I agree. That's the glass half full version of it, of like a good takeaway lesson. For me, the more cynical way of watching it through the education lens is why I appreciate the restaurant industry as the context for this show is in a world where the margins are that thin, yeah, you know, it's that competitive. Time is zero sum. And I think the other way of watching it is that the restaurant suffered because Carmi didn't prioritize it the way he would have without the relationship. And he didn't call to get that refrigerator uh, because mm-hmm. he was taking a call from his girlfriend. And that is, I think, at a broader level, we have these conversations all the time, right? Do you draw firm boundaries on your time? And if you do, does that in some way take away from what you would have invested in your classroom? Yes, it, it does, right? Like if you spend extra time trying to make your classroom better in the short term, that probably takes away from your classroom and you know that and you're seeing that happen. 
Are you okay with that to make the job sustainable? I struggle with that daily. Teachers struggle mm-hmm. with that daily. And I think the, pro- the the indictment on that is the system itself, right? It shouldn't take all of that to make education work. But mm-hmm. in the current moment, it kind of does. And what do you do as a teacher in that space? What do you do as a chef in that restaurant industry when the bar is that high? And I think that's that a good point thing that I struggle with, with the show, but it's a good struggle. Like I'm, I am, and I love Abbott elementary. It obviously highlights all sorts of other educational issues, but for me getting there metaphorically, that's when yeah. it hit really hard for me. And yeah. I was like, yeah, I, I like questioning my entire existence as a teacher in a good way, yeah. but also in a yeah. pretty hard way. One, one quick note before we close out in terms of education, uh, and connection to the bear. The other thing that I thought a lot about was just the apprenticeship model, right? This idea of apprenticeships is something that I think is really kind of lost in education. And it's not, I, I kind of draw a parallel to like technical schools and vocational schools that are not seen as I guess, prestigious as like, you know, your more traditional four year liberal arts pathway. But what I loved about the show is um, I forget the guy's name, but Carmi's Carmi's colleague in Denmark that he sends Marcus to talks about how he wasn't, he wasn't good at school. The reason why he fell into this world was because he wasn't good at school. And he was, I think he was kind of getting in trouble. He, maybe he said, and he sort of, fell into this and apprenticed himself with this amazing chef and build up his skill set. And I just think that there's so much to that because I want, yeah, culturally speaking, I want like that type of career pathway to be a lot more open for people. And it was, and it was also really fascinating and redemptive for me to especially see Marcus like, go through that experience, not just to build up his skill set, but like as a personal sort of learning, like a personal reflective life journey um, was, was one other big connection that I was making, but I know that we're a little over time here, but yeah, the bear is (laughs) great. Yeah. I, we could go on. We have gone on to acknowledge that. Yeah. Uh, I think, Maybe we need. I need to do better of not watching everything through an educational lens, but I do think if you haven't watched the show, highly recommend it. And we won't always go on show dalliances on this podcast, and we'll timestamp it so we'll let people know when the education yeah. talk ends. But this is, I think, it is education talk in a way, and I think I think so. Yeah, and teachers watch the bear. If you're listening, why don't you give us some feedback? Let us know if this has been helpful because this is something that uh, both of us were like, oh, we want to talk about the bear. But it, it, there's a lot of parallels. And I think it's it was is really valuable for me to just sort of watch it uh, as a person, but as a teacher. And it was, yeah, it was interesting. Okay. Well, with that, uh, next week we'll, we'll talk about how Game of Thrones is also like your classroom. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, yeah. No, <laughs> just I kidding. don't know about that. Yeah. Um, but Marcus, man, it's great to see you. I hope you're having a great summer and, uh, yeah, let's best of luck with everything. Um, what do you got? Do you have any plans? Are you traveling for the summer or anything like that? 
We have some bigger trips later on. Right now, it's just kind of in the survival mode with smaller trips and taking care of the, the checklist, but uh, riding yeah. a few things and uh, really just trying to make summer work for me in a selfish way. I think that's good. a good thing. That is a good thing. It's a good place to end. Uh, good luck, and we'll see you soon. Okay, take care, Jim. The Broken Copier is an independent, listener-supported podcast for teachers. The show is written, hosted, and produced by Marcus Luther and myself, Jim Mares. Thanks to Alberto Lugo, a former student of mine, for writing and producing original intro music. Born and raised in Brooklyn, Alberto is an independent DJ and music producer based in New York City. You can find his work on Instagram at DJ Synchro and explore his portfolio at djsynchro.weebly.com. Thanks to Tom Chitari, a jazz musician, composer, and teacher based in Australia. Right now, you're listening to Woodstock from his album Garden, available on Spotify. You can stream all his music on Spotify under the name Uncivilized, on Instagram at banduncivilized, and online at uncivilizedtom.com. You can even sign up for remote guitar lessons with Tom, just like I do. Thanks to my sister, Courtney Malavik, for the graphic design you see on our social media and episode posts. Thanks to Brandon Piasecki for helping to get this project off the ground. You can leave us an audio message at podinbox.com slash brokencopier. We might be able to respond and feature it in the next episode. The goal of the show is to connect with a passionate, diverse group of educators, bring helpful analysis and collaboration, and celebrate everyone doing the hard work in the classroom. We hope to connect and direct time, resources, and energy towards concrete efforts that will improve student outcomes, especially in marginalized and underserved communities. We are not the only ones doing this. We want to honor and say thank you to the many educators out there, past, present, and future, who already understand their classroom practice through a lens of equity and change. We'd love to connect with you, hear about what you're doing, and give you a space to share your work. If you want to support the show, you can help us grow and connect for free. Reach out on social media at The Broken Copier, text an episode link to your friends in education, or even share an episode to your own social media feeds. You can email thoughts, feedback, and ideas to thebrokencopier at substack.com. You can also read other essays and thoughts on teaching at thebrokencopier.substack.com, where we publish all of our episodes available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.